What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. While researching for this season, we came across the same thing time and time again. Issues with law enforcement in the area, stories from within law enforcement, families feeling like things were being brushed under the carpet, families feeling like they were being targeted if they made a complaint or raised any questions. In the episode we have interviews from, some law enforcement personnel who came forward to speak to us, as well as family members recounting their experiences. We will also hear more in later episodes as the story unfolds. Cindy's father, John, told us that he had not really had an issue with the sheriff's office until he was called a liar. He told us about one incident that happened to him. I did get arrested walking across the parking lot and going to a cocktail lounge. I walked in there uh, to get a piece of paper for my employee to sign. And I got out and I was walking back. You know, I got in and opened up the deal and got back out. You know, so they uh, asked me what I was doing while I'm walking into the bar to see my bartender. You've been drinking? I said, no. I said, there's a beer on that bar for me. I've been told, I don't know for sure, but I hear it was the Sheriff's Moore nephew that arrested me. 
I've heard other people have been more harassed. I mean, has had different things happen. It was well known I wasn't happy with more. He knew it. We asked Cindy's sister, Kim, about her experience with the sheriff's office during her sister's case. Debbie Sheffield was the investigator on the on the case. Her and I got super close. I mean, no matter what I asked, because it wasn't red taped, I was given the answer. I don't think they got tired of me because I was on the media. I was helping other families. I was an advocate for the missing for so many years. I would actually go into another situation and get the answers for the families. So in the beginning, I think that they did their best to keep us informed. And they had no choice because I was knocking on their door every five minutes. I was helping them because I knew these guys. So they would come to me and say, well, is this person their friend or is this, can you help me with this? And of course I was right there and giving them the answers they needed. Leonard Padilla, bounty hunter, tells us about his experience with the sheriff's office in San Joaquin County. I did not have any faith in the sheriff's office in San Joaquin, and I was always leery and afraid of them. Uh, it seemed like they were more interested in, in things other than finding out who killed or who did any of these homicides, that they were more concerned about other people than they were about that. And so I just kind of stayed out of their way. I was, to be honest about it, I, I think I was afraid of them. When me and Rob went down into San Joaquin County, we were always looking over our shoulder. And we were always concerned about the sheriff's car they just went by or something to that effect. In December 2017, Dr. Bennett Amalu, San Joaquin County's chief medical examiner, submitted a four-page letter tendering his resignation. This came just a few days after his fellow pathologist, Susan Parson, announced that she was leaving. They both cited Sheriff Coroner Steve Moore and the way he ran the office as their main reasons. Dr. Amalu is nationally known as the doctor depicted in the movie Concussion about brain injuries among football players. He led pioneering research in this area that resulted in better safety headwear for players. Dr. Amalu's first major problem with Moore started in the summer of 2008 when the body of a 46-year-old male was wheeled into the morgue. The deceased crashed his motorcycle on Interstate 5 while fleeing from a California Highway Patrol officer. He then attempted to climb the median that divided the freeway before being shocked twice with the taser. When a taser is used, the sheriff's office is required to create a document explaining what happened. Six months after this incident, no document was received. So Dr. Amalu examined the deceased brain and concluded that the victim had a concussion, which in rare cases can lead to death. Over two years later, Dr. Amalu obtained the documentation from an assistant district attorney 
created the day after the incident. It showed that the male had been shocked 31 times in a space of around seven minutes. That led to Dr. Amalu changing the manner of death from accident to homicide due to repeated conducted electrical excitation. However, Sheriff Moore continued to classify the death as an accident. Dr. Amalu also said corpses were left to decompose in the morgue for weeks on end. Doctors were pressured to turn homicides involving law enforcement officers into accidental deaths. Hands were cut off of dead bodies without warning. And Sheriff Moore would change report findings. In his resignation letter, Dr. Amalu accused Moore of, quote, trying to control me as a physician, end quote. He said the conditions created by Sheriff Coroner Steve Moore had been so intolerable that he worried about, quote, aiding and abetting the unlicensed practice of medicine, end quote. Susan said she was leaving over what she called Moore's, quote, intrusion into physician independence, end quote, and that Moore had made the coroner's office, quote, personably unbearable and professional unsustainable, end quote. Moore released a statement that he said he was sad to learn that Dr. Amalu had resigned and denied allegations that he had interfered with forensic investigations. He was quoted as writing, I would never try to control, influence, or change the opinions of Dr. Amalu or any pathologist working on a case, but I still have the responsibility of making the final determination. End quote. Frank Eldo, the 20-year law enforcement veteran who we spoke to in early episodes, had this to say. I think the lesson that I learned, and it was a painful one, there's a saying in law enforcement that 10% are angels, 10% are devils, and 80% will follow whichever 10% they perceive to be in power. For me, not that I consider myself an angel, I don't know what the hell I am, but I know I'm not a devil because I've seen devils and I'm not that. What frightens me so much isn't the devils. I mean, I worked on San Quentin before. I've, you know, worked on death row. I've, I've dealt with the worst kind of people on earth for many, many years. And, and I can handle that. I actually am comfortable dealing with that. What I'm not comfortable in dealing with is the 80%. The 80% of people who consider themselves to be good but don't do a damn thing when evil is occurring. They just don't do nothing. They're so scared of their own situation. They're so scared of their own job and their own mortgage payment and their own this and their own that, that they won't step up. And so I think the thing that was so disappointing for me where I became so disillusioned is, you know, I was kind of under the, in a lot of ways, I mean, I grew up on a small vineyard and was a small country boy. And I had this sort of, I don't know, false sense of law enforcement that, you know, we all were good guys and, and, um, you know, sort of the Andy Griffiths show that, you know, we all had this, you know, higher moral standard. And, you know, for most part, I think most 
cops are very courageous when it comes to, you know, they'll all run into a running building and save people and even take, you know, shots fired at them. And, and they're courageous people in a lot of ways. But the one area, and this is a generalization, but I'm sorry, law enforcement, for the most part, my experience has been most of you are cowards when it comes to facing institutionalized corruption. Most of you, law enforcement, when, you're, when your chain of command is dirty, you don't have the courage to face it. And that makes me sick and makes me want to throw up. And it made me realize at some point I can no longer be a part of any organization. I represent myself. And maybe that's why I was best as a bounty hunter. I don't want to be a part of any entity because um, I don't like being responsible for the actions of others. It's hard enough being responsible for the actions of myself. As Frank mentioned before, he became a whistleblower since retiring and has also spent an enormous amount of time helping victims' families. It's very difficult when you have victims calling you up in the middle of the night crying about how they're scared uh, because they, they feel that, that the, the system is so rigged that they are in danger. <laughs> I mean, you know, San Joaquin County is a very, very weird place. For people that had been wronged by Sheriff Moore, many people in the community knew that I was a vocal whistleblower and critic of Sheriff Baxter Dunn because that had been in the paper and I, I made no bone. I mean, I was the first guy who came out and said that Baxter Dunn was an unconvicted felon. And that was in the newspaper. I mean, I, I was calling out Baxter before, it, you know, now if you call Baxter a felon, it's everybody accepts it because it's, well, actually he's, he's, his, his conviction has been reversed, so he's no longer a felon. But, but people pretty much have come to the conclusion that there was a problem during the Baxter Dunn days. Now, I was ahead of the curve and I was calling that problem early on before it was a popular thing to say. Well, it's kind of funny. I thought I was done with all that, but I ended up being in that same position with Sheriff Steve Moore. It's easy now to say, I mean, if you tell people in San Joaquin County, yeah, Sheriff Steve Moore's corrupt, everybody, including, <laughs> including his own family, including his own supporters, <laughs> they all know it's true. Baxter Dunn actually was a likable guy. Steve Moore was not likable. So there was a little bit of a difference there. People, you know, Steve Moore had positional power, but he never really had personal power. Baxter Dunn was a guy who had both. I mean, there were people that personally liked him. He knew how to socialize. Steve Moore is an awkward guy where people liked him because of the position he was in. Everybody, including his own supporters, would always say, geez, he's, he's an oddball. And Steve Moore's an odd guy. So, you know, two different kinds of personalities, for sure. A detective came and knocked on the door, and I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. 
You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof, wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. We were also able to speak to Carlos, who is currently serving in San Joaquin County and used to work on the ranges. Uh, my name's uh, Carlos Prieto. I'm a deputy sheriff with the San Joaquin County Sheriff's Department. I've been there approximately 29 and a half years. I was born in Stockton, kind of like South Stockton, like Charterway, Mariposa area. I knew I wanted to get to law enforcement from high school, so went to Delta, got my AA. Then after I got that, I was like 20, so I got myself in the academy because you can't get hired to 21. So I put myself to the Delta Police Academy. That's why I liked working there because I sponsored myself and I liked helping the ones that sponsored themselves who went there. So after the academy, got hired in 90 with the sheriff's office. Worked custody for nine and a half years, but during that nine and a half years, did nothing but send myself to gun schools and stuff. And I think everybody thought it was going to be a temporary thing, but I kind of like just, we did the same qualification the entire time I was there. I mean, it never changed. It was the same simple course of fire. So when I got there, I started changing the course of fire every qualification. I started as a DS1 and I'm a DS2 now. So it's like beginning deputy. So I I started in the... uh, uh, working custody for nine and a half years. During that time, I sent myself to gun schools and army schools. And then uh, I went out to patrol for approximately 11 and a half years. And then because of all the training that I had, I was offered the position as range master. So I was range master at the department for uh, 12 years. We asked Carlos what his job involved. Well, the thing was with the, uh, when we IBIS tested the guns, if I remember correctly, the acronym, it's uh, Integrated Ballistic System. So basically where you shoot the, uh, the projectile into the water tank and you collect the projectile and the casing, then you send that, you, you um, book that back into evidence and then TS takes it, uh, technical services, and they'll take it down to Stockton where they have the computer. And then that's where they'll check the rifling and the firing pin marks and everything to see if it matches. And then they'll run it in the system and then see if they get any hits, which uh, when I was there, they got a couple hits like on a couple guns and stuff. So any guns that come in, uh, they're having us IBIS test all of the guns. So yeah, we would basically test fire all the uh, weapons that came in per the lieutenant. I think it was Angeli was in charge at that time. So the process, I go to the evidence room I usually take out like five to 10 guns at a time, just something that I knew I could get done and back in that day. So I checked those out and they had a scanner with my name and bark on a barcode so that I, they'd scan them out to me out to range for test fire. Take them to the range. We had a, a water tank there where basically shot into the water tank, 
and you want, then they wanted like two projectiles and then two casings from that gun. So after I get those, I'd wrap them in uh, tissue paper, put them in a little white box, and then I put a label with the case number, the serial number, uh, make and model, and the information on that, and then put that one to the side, then move on to the next gun. Once I had all those completed, I would return the 10 guns. Carlos loved his job and said that all the time he was running the range, there were no issues. But then in 2012, he was removed under the suspicious circumstances. Basically, uh, my sergeant, Sergeant John Palmer, every year I have to do a blood test for uh, lead levels, just because, you know, you're working around all the lead and stuff there, and we have a bullet trap that we have to, I have to empty and stuff. So every year I go to uh, Dameron Occupational Health and then get a blood test. So I think it was 2011, my sergeant says, hey, you need to go back to Dameron Occupational Health and take another blood test. I go, what for? They go, well, they lost your test results. And I go, all right. I go, I don't I have no problem going with the, taking another blood test. So when I go down there, the nurse knows me because my mom was a nurse at Dameron for 11 years. She goes, well, what are you doing here? And I go, my sergeant told me that you guys lost my uh, test results for the, the lead test. She would say, bullshit. And she went in the back and she got my thousands. I go, is there anything? Because I don't receive any of these things, I have to request them from my Sarge. So my Sarge, they mail these straight to my sergeant. I don't see these. If I didn't ask for them, I would never see them. So she go, I go, well, is there anything wrong with it? She goes, no, you're fine. Because it's still within normal limits. All they ask you to do is like, just wash your hands more often. Zero to 10 would be perfect. So the 10 to like 20, they just ask you to reevaluate, your, you know, how you were cleaning and handling the lead and stuff. But you're not in any danger until you reach like 80 to 90. But this was a call by the administration to basically, and then by this time, Palmer, who's the only one that got this information, he was trying to push for me to put in for a workman's comp thing. And I said, I'm not sick. I go, I'm within, I'm perfectly fine. But he was dead, but he wanted, he started like drawing up things to do a workman's comp thing. I go, I don't need a workman's comp. Yeah, and I didn't know anything at that time. But basically, he wanted me off the range. So a little bit after that, I had people come to the range and saying they were sorry to hear I was dying. I'm like, what are you talking about? They go, yeah, we hear you're dying from lead poisoning. I go, I'm not dying from lead poisoning. I mean, I literally, from on the range, and when I walk in the hallways, people would come up and tell me they, were heard, they heard I was dying from lead poisoning. I go, I'm not dying from lead poisoning. So... Basically, when it went up to, when I was trying, I, I got all this paperwork. My friend worked at OSHA. She sent me all the paperwork. It showed all the different levels for that, you know, you know where you got the danger and what the recommendations were. And I, I made a copy for Piconi and Sheriff Moore. Well, from what I heard, that pissed off Sheriff Moore. Carlos was put on patrol for two months before going back to the range. So I, was, I basically went to the academy. Then I did like two months on patrol. Basically, I always had a training officer with me, but they didn't do evals on me. So basically, I was just a glorified ride-along that did the paperwork. So when they did send me back, Palmer made a com uh, Sergeant Palmer made a comment to me. He says, oh, you know, when you get done with all the IBIS testing, because all the IBIS stuff had like built up. So basically, he didn't allow me to do any range master stuff. Like, he didn't want me to be on the range qualifying people, work on any guns. Basically, I was only supposed to like do the IBIS testing. 
And right during that time, the SWAT team did like a gun buyback thing where they give you the gift cards for the guns and stuff. So we literally had crates full of guns. So after he told me, I'm gonna, you know, after you get done with this IBIS thing, you're going back out to patrol, which I kind of figured. So I took my time. I would IBIS test one gun a day. And then during that time, Mettler was in there doing all the stuff I should be doing. And the thing with Mettler, he was always on the computer. Well, he didn't like turning it off. That's why some of these memos and stuff are basically hit control P and then print it up. And then that's how I got a lot of my information. I had the one memo between Palmer, Mettler, and I think it was Colts when they uh, down, he downed all the rifles. That's what started the whole Gungate thing. From Steve Mettler to Sergeant Palmer on Thursday, July 7, 2011, uh, destroyed department weapon. Per our conversation on Ranch A Day on, of the Six Hour Pistol, I destroyed. Serial number was Union 586073. As I indicated, the pistol was stripped to the frame, and the frame was smashed as it was determined non-reliable by the factory. The changes to the weapon staff has been made in TMS, that's training management system. They no longer use that anymore. Uh, but no, no notification has been made to ATF that it was destroyed. You have to book it into evidence to be destroyed. And then all of our weapons are destroyed right now in at Patterson Pass at the smelting place. We take all of our narcotics and our weapons there. We're basically, they're tossed into a shredder and then they go into a furnace. Once you book it in for destruction, it'll go in there because you got to do a case and then, then records will notify that it was booked for de to be destroyed. And then that's how it gets the ATF gets notified. Because he's basically saying that he just, he smashed the weapon or destroyed the weapon on the range and stuff. Uh, basically, I asked uh, Mettler on this one, what happened to the frame? Because if you destroy the frame, you still have the parts. Well, the, the SIGs are aluminum frames. Because I asked him, well, well, how'd you destroy it? He goes, well, I smashed it with the hammer. I go, well, where's the frame at? He goes, oh, it's shattered. I go, it's aluminum. If anything, it's going to flatten out. What did you do with that frame? And then he just went stone cold. He just, he just didn't, he wouldn't answer me. He gave me a blank look. And I just kind of got, I know I had a disgusted look. And I just walked away. Because I'm like, he did something with that frame. Even if you even if you smashed it, you're still you still have to book it in for evidence. There's no getting around taking the parts or the flattened piece and book it in for evidence to be destroyed. It still has to get shredded and melted. Carlos tells us about an incident with their patrol rifles. Steve Mettler, the one that's like taking over the range, he got all of our patrol rifles and deemed that they were unserviceable due to excessive headspace. So I was trying to tell him. There's nothing wrong with our rifles. I contacted the, the head guy that I got my training from at Colt, told him the situation. He said, there's nothing wrong with them. Don't mess with them. There's a way to check the headspace gauge for the rifles. And I was telling uh, Lieutenant um, Williams, I says, Mettler doesn't have any of that training to make that determination. I go, he's just using these little gauges and that, that's not how you do the determination. You gotta take the whole rifle apart and look for erosion in the uh, chamber of the rifle and stuff. So basically I was telling him that Mettler didn't know what he was talking about and that's basically him telling me to shut up. Because what happened there was Mettler deemed all of our patrol rifles unserviceable so they took them all offline. So now our patrol guys didn't have any rifle. So I'm like, they're perfectly fine. They're, they're military rifles. They're basically M16s from the government. They're, they're built to like last 
longer than any of us. So basically, I believe they did that, which that opened the door for them to go to the department and say, hey, if we sell these evidence guns, we can raise money to buy brand new patrol rifles. Because that was the only reason that we had the gun gate, where we did that. Because if without, without them downing those patrol rifles, which was Mettler and Palmer, there's no reason for them to sell those evidence guns. It seems that there were issues with guns even before Steve Moore became sheriff. Frank tells us this. But one thing I think that's relevant to where we're at today with, with the Steve Moore thing and all that is one thing that Baxter was doing, allegedly, was he would give evidence guns away as Christmas presents to his friends and, and financial supporters. And the way that he allegedly was doing that was when guns would come in, they simply would not enter them into the automated firearm system, which is kind of like, you know, the Department of Motor Vehicles for guns. So these guns were coming into the sheriff's possession by various means. Sometimes people die, and a bunch of guns laying around, and you know, you, you pick those up. Sometimes guns are involved in, you know, homicides, or, or sometimes they're literally like, you know, found on the side of the street and somebody calls up. Whatever, there's a variety of ways that evidence guns become in the possession of the sheriff's office. And a lot of these guns were not being entered into the automated firearm system. And then it was easy to give them away because the sheriff's office was never in the chain of custody of owning them. So that's one of the things that I feel that Sheriff Steve Moore sort of picked up on that. Because Steve Moore was doing the same thing where he wasn't entering uh, guns into the automated firearm system either. So the law on evidence guns is, is that when a law enforcement entity becomes in possession of a gun for any reason, whether it's safekeeping or because it was involved in a crime or whatever reason it is, those guns are immediately to be entered into the automated firearm system so that anyone in the future can, can look that gun and serial number up and realize at some point law enforcement had a hold of it. As far as the disposition of those guns, those guns either can be returned back to their lawful owner, or in some cases, the gun can be used for what's called law enforcement purposes or training purposes, or in some limited situations, they can be sold to the public, but the rules on that are very specific. There, it has to be a public auction there's all kinds of very, very specific things that have, have to occur in order to sell them. But one of the most basic tenets of it is that it has to be a, a public auction that's you know publicly advertised. So our own district attorney, Tori Verber Salazar, she memorializes in a document that the sheriff's office took evidence guns, negotiated the sale of those evidence guns to a place called Adamson Police Supply in Hayward, and then repurchased those guns at a substantial discount. Substantial discount being the words of the DA. This is so significant because per 1090 of the penal code, the conflict of interest, that absolutely cannot occur. They could not have purchased back those evidence guns at any price. When you say substantial discount, that is code word for public embezzlement because the county didn't get the full value of those guns. So what in essence happened is the county lost money 
when these deputies and the sheriff himself were purchasing guns at substantial discounts. And that is public embezzlement. There's no statute of limitation for that. There's only two crimes in California, two of them, that have no statute of limitations. One of them is murder. The other one is public embezzlement. So our DA, who refused to file on the sheriff, she's able to delay the inevitable. If we get another DA in there and that DA decides to look into the evidence that there's there, Sheriff Moore could be in very big trouble because he absolutely, based on what the district attorney wrote herself and memorialized, obtained substantial discounts on evidence guns that he helped sell and then purchase. We have a a violation of public embezzlement and we have a violation of conflict of interest, government Now the DA, the reason that she didn't, I believe, uh, file on the sheriff is lo and behold, we found out the district attorney's office also was receiving what? Substantial discounts from the what? The same, very same gun dealer that Sheriff Moore was laundering evidence guns through, Adamson Police Supply in Hayward. The DA's office was using that very same gun dealer and was also getting substantial discounts on on equipment for their office. So it, it was a mess. You know, very, very frustrating. But GunGate's extremely important because GunGate is an example of how the sheriff's office treated evidence, which is if evidence was of value, the sheriff would steal it. If evidence was going to create a lot of work for the sheriff's office, he would destroy it. And if evidence was kind of a neutral thing where it didn't make him money and it didn't cost him money, he just kind of neglected it. So, you know, when you're a law enforcement entity, one of the the legs to the table is your evidence room. Once evidence comes in, you need to know exactly where that evidence, who handled it, when they handled it, when it got taken out, all of that stuff. I mean, the evidence room at the sheriff's office is a complete mess. It's a, it's a disaster. And it's a disaster to the point that you can't trust any of the evidence, in my humble opinion. And I think part of the problem that we have today and the, the scary thing into looking to all this is there's some unintended consequences. If the public really understood how bad the evidence room is at the sheriff's office, it gets to the point where, well, you just really can't trust any of the convictions. This is a big shit show. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. 
Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure. We also spoke to Marty, another law enforcement veteran. Marty worked at the San Joaquin Sheriff's Office. I was born Martin Carlson, and I was uh, born and raised in Northern California. And I uh, have recently moved to Nevada because of personal reasons, of course, was California. So I've spent 63 years in California, mostly almost all in the Northern California area. So I'm real familiar with the goings on from Modesto North, uh, Modesto, Stockton, Sacramento. Formerly was the San Joaquin County Sheriff's Department, started with the reserve program, initially called auxiliaries, but reserve program in the early 80s, and then moved on to other things within the department. I saw some other things that I didn't like. And so, I and I just, one day I'm sitting there in the evidence room, watching some of these things go on, and I just decided I don't want to do this. What happened was I was I was booking some evidence at the end of the shift. There were several officers in there. And one of the officers came in, he had a gun that he had taken out of a car. And he says, he was bragging. He was literally bragging. Well, I took this car out of the gun, out of this guy's car, it's illegal as hell. And one of the officers says, well, you know, he'll just get that gun back. And he says, well, I'll just take the engraver and fuck it all up then. And I'm going, why do I want to be a part of this? You know? I'm no saint, I'm not an angel, but why would I want to be a part of something like that? That type of mentality. I think that's where it starts. That mentality starts at the top, it always does. Show integrity, you'll see guys acting with integrity. And the lack of accountability is a real problem. You know, and like I said, I don't want to see officers, you know, get in trouble because most of them are very good people, but you just have those few that just need to be dealt with and they're not. You see some of these things going on and they're not dealt with appropriately. We asked Marty if he felt he could have reported what he had witnessed to anybody. It wouldn't have done me any good. I just would have been harming myself. I didn't feel there was anything to gain. Nothing was going to be done to this guy. So my attitude was, just get me out of here. Nothing's going to be gained by, by me or anybody else by that. He's not going to get in trouble for it. You know, I will pick my battles. I pick my battles. In 2018, Sheriff Moore was voted out and replaced by Pat Withrow, who we have heard from previously. Carlos tells us what the atmosphere was like in the police department when this happened. I'm really glad he won, but I I don't envy the mess he inherited. When he, he won, dude, the next day, there was just a total relief. Everybody's just, their morale was up. I mean, everyone was just happy, but no one said nothing because, you know, you don't know who's like a more supporter. So, but yeah, morale at work. Yeah, it was way better. I mean, yeah. I, and if more were to one, I would have retired 
last year. Finally, we hear from Pat Withrow, the current sheriff of San Joaquin County. We asked Pat what it was like to be a deputy under the previous administration. Yeah, it was a very, very difficult place for all of us, myself included, to work under, especially with the personality types in law enforcement, the type of people that come into this business. Um, We're usually high-driven kind of adrenaline junkies that uh, are anxious to go out there and help people. And when we're not allowed to do that, it really affects us emotionally uh, probably greater than it would other other folks. You know, I, I guess I can only speak to that by what happened the other night. And this is really kind of nice for my wife and myself, especially for my wife to to be able to hear this. We were at a fundraiser. We go to a lot of those now. And some wives of officers that work for our department came up and thanked her for what she has done and what uh, our family has done by stepping up and, and getting involved. And they, they told stories of how their their husbands were would come home miserable. Many of them were looking for other jobs. They were depressed, it affected their home life. And they were gracious enough to share the stories that that has changed now. And they love coming to work again. And they're excited to, to come back and be able to do their jobs and know that they're gonna be supportive because you can't do the job of law enforcement anymore with uh, the way society is today without an administration that is going to back you up when you do the right thing. They don't mind being held accountable when they make a mistake. We all make mistakes. We're all human. And as long as they're trying to do the right thing and we make a mistake, we understand there are consequences to pay for that sometimes. But when you do the right thing and your department doesn't stand up for you, that is devastating to the morale of the department. So I believe that we have turned that around here at the sheriff's office and we have let it be known that we expect our officers to be the best they can be at all times. And we will do everything we can to make sure that, that they have the tools to go home safe to their families. And if, uh, if you're a bad apple and you want to treat people badly, we don't want you here and we'll get rid of you. But if you're out there trying to do the right thing, we're going to support you and make sure that, that, uh, you enjoy coming to work, that your family is part of our family, and uh, we're really bringing back that atmosphere of, hey, we're all in this together, and we're here to work closely with our community, and it should be fun to come to work. We've got so much stress and horrible stuff that we see on a daily basis. We want to make sure that uh, uh, you enjoy coming to work. So I believe we have uh, turned that culture around here at the department, and uh, we will continue as long as I'm here to support the men and women that put their lives on the line every day and our professional staff that is in the background that everybody forgets about all our dispatchers and clerks and uh, everyone that works here that uh, we couldn't do our job without that they are supported and, and, and taken care of. So that's one of our uh, the, the, the proudest uh, moments since I've been here is when those wives came up and started uh, telling my wife us that and and uh i uh not ashamed to say that i had to thank them and turn and walk away because i didn't want to break down right there in front of them to hear that
When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.